You're listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, episode 123. Welcome to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, where we bring you engaging conversations about wildlife and conservation issues from all across the globe. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. In today's show, we are exploring and comparing the extinction crises experienced by two very different wildlife species, the California condor and the vaquita. If you've been following the latest news about the vaquita, then you've probably already heard a number of comparisons between the situation faced by this small species of porpoise and that faced by the condor in the early 1980s. A lot of folks have been drawing this comparison between these two high-profile endangered species issues, but how similar are the situations faced by these two animals really? Having spent six years of my life working very closely with the California Condor Recovery Project, first as a biologist, then as a filmmaker and storyteller, I've been steeped in the natural history and the conservation history of this unique scavenging species. This is in part why I was so interested in getting involved with telling the story behind the vaquita. I saw this as an opportunity to document this species' extinction crisis as it unfolds. So, let's start with the most obvious similarity that folks have been pointing to, the rate of decline and the low population numbers. The wild population of California condors dropped to 21 individuals in 1981. This is quite similar to the latest population estimate that we've gotten for the vaquita, which was 30 individuals as of the fall of 2016. How biologists came to these numbers is quite different, however. Up until 1981, there was no accurate population estimate for the California condor population. It was uh, actually a remarkable insight by one of the condor biologists that led to their ability to accurately assess the population in the early 80s. The, this biologist realized that every individual condor had a unique feather molt pattern. So by taking lots of photos of condors in flight and analyzing these molt patterns, biologists were able to identify individuals. In many ways, this technique was a precursor to what is becoming one of the most powerful tools for assessing wildlife populations, using unique patterns found on animals to identify individuals. Today, we have computer software that can identify unique spot patterns for giraffes, stripe patterns for zebras, allowing researchers to much more easily collect basic demography data on these populations. The decline of the vaquita has actually been much more well-documented than the decline of the California condor, despite the fact that the condor is much more visible on the landscape. Population estimates for the vaquita come from a combination of three large-scale visual surveys that have been conducted within their range in the northern Gulf of California, as well as remote acoustic monitoring surveys, which are conducted throughout each year. The vaquita uses sonar to navigate and hunt for food, and these sonar clicks are detected by a series of special underwater microphones, then analyzed and compared to the visual survey data to come up with that most accurate population estimate. So although we are not able to differentiate individuals within the vaquita population, the decline of the species has been much more clearly documented than that of the condor. Condor population estimates pre-1981 were very unscientific. 
Another important difference lies in the knowledge that scientists have about the causes behind the declines of each of these species. At the time of the condor's extinction crisis in the 1980s, the cause of this animal's decline was actually a big mystery. Condor researchers had put out a number of theories throughout the 1960s and 70s, and it was well known that the population was in decline, but nobody knew for certain what was causing the decline until after captive breeding began and condors were being released back into the wild. At this point, biologists began observing condors feeding upon the remains of big game that had been harvested with lead ammunition, and this correlated with elevated levels of lead found in the condor's blood. We can now look back and say with a pretty high degree of certainty that lead poisoning was one of the more crucial factors in the historic decline of the condor. But at the time that the species was going through its extinction crisis, this was not known. The cause behind the vaquitas decline has been well known for over a decade, however. Although there continues to be controversy over this, it's been well documented that the vaquitas decline has been caused by entanglement in gill nets. These nets have been the most commonly used method of fishing for a wide variety of species in the upper Gulf of California for many decades, and they cause problems not just for the vaquita, but for all species of marine mammals. So for California condors, it's lead poisoning from spent ammunition. For the vaquita, it's entanglement in gill nets. Both of these issues are similar in that they cause harm to a wide variety of species, and they both stem from a particular method for harvesting animals for human consumption. We're going to dig into each of these topics more deeply because this is the crux of the issue. For both condors and the vaquita, there has been lots of effort put forth into finding ways to end these practices that are driving species declines. As you might imagine, there's never total agreement on what the best approach is, and the stakes are high for people on both ends of the issue. Let's look at the lead ammunition issue first. It wasn't until 2006 that the first scientific paper was published documenting lead poisoning in California condors from spent rifle ammunition. At this point, condors had already had a dramatic recovery from their crisis period in the early 1980s. Wild condors have been successfully trapped and brought into captivity, where breeding programs had enormous success in boosting the population. Condors were re-released back into the wild in 1992 in California and in 1996 in Arizona. Remember, all this time it was still unknown what had actually caused the condor's decline in the first place, and it wasn't until more than 10 years after releases of captive-raised birds began that an understanding began to emerge about what had happened. It took so long to figure this out because condors are a long-lived species that rely on learned behavior. It simply took these newly released populations 10 years to redevelop the foraging patterns that had been lost when the last wild birds were captured in the 1980s. So what response did that paper get, published in 2006, that finally shed some light on this long, mysterious question? The scientific community accepted this as one might expect, with uncertainty at first, but with growing acceptance as the results were replicated and more studies came out showing similar results. The lead ammunition industry also reacted as one might expect, with outright denial and the launching of a massive misinformation campaign that is still going on now, more than 10 years later. Here's Lawrence Keene, the vice president of the National Shooting Sports Foundation. The issue of traditional ammunition and efforts by some to restrict or ban its use uh, is considered by industry to be the single largest threat we now face. Uh, 
um, as an industry. Um, NSSF's position uh, on the general issue of traditional ammunition um, is this. The NSSF opposes efforts to ban or restrict the use of traditional ammunition containing lead components for use in hunting or shooting unless there is sound science conclusively establishing that the use of traditional ammunition is causing an adverse impact on wildlife populations, the environment, or on human health of those consuming game harvested with traditional ammunition, and that other reasonable, less costly measures, and less costly, I should say, to the hunter and the sportsman, less costly measures short of restricting or banning the product cannot be undertaken to adequately address the concern at hand. This was recorded back in 2011 while I was shooting for my first film, Scavenger Hunt. But Mr. Keene has barely adjusted his talking points since that time. The vaquita, similarly, was in decline for a long time before researchers understood what the cause behind this decline was. During this time, the most popular theory was that the decline of the vaquita was somehow connected to the decrease in flow from the Colorado River. This theory was particularly popular with certain Mexican politicians who wanted to pass the blame for this conservation issue onto the U.S., this theory was disproven, however, by the Ph.D. research of the best-known vaquita biologist out there, Lorenzo Rojas Bracho. Lorenzo examined the carcasses of vaquitas that were pulled up in fishermen's nets and found that these animals were well-fed and healthy before they became hopelessly entangled in gill nets. Once again, this was backed up over the years by subsequent research, and the scientific consensus emerged that it was gill nets that were responsible for the vaquitas' decline. Although there has been no large-scale, coordinated effort to discredit these scientific findings, the leaders of the Fishing Federation that represent the majority of fishermen in the northern Gulf of California continue to deny that gillnets harm the vaquita. This perspective permeates throughout the communities of the upper Gulf as this outdated and disproven theory continues to be spread. Here's Sunshine Rodriguez, the president of one of the largest fishing federations in the upper Gulf of California. The fishermen and the shrimp fishermen are not killing La Vaquita Marina. You know, they, they come out in those, uh, all, the, all their interviews and all their studies with these uh, vaquitas tangled up in these, uh, these big nets. See, this that I have in my hand. Can you hold it up like this? Yeah. This that I have in my hand is the actual shrimp net. Not the ones they show on La Vaquita when the vaquitas... I mean, it's a point zero twenty-seven of a millimeter. Anybody that's a real fisherman knows what this is, you know. And this line, any fish over two pounds makes a hole in it. A vaquita marina weighs over 30 pounds. They'll make a hole right through it, you know. It, and, and they come out on, on their videos showing uh, these big nets. We don't use those nets for shrimp. This is what we use for shrimp, and they're going after our. They're going after the shrimp uh, fishermen. It's again. It's uh, they're doing it totally wrong. Uh, they should be more concerned about the water from the Colorado River. That it's the lack of minerals that are coming into the Sea of Cortez. It's not only La Boquita Marina that's suffering uh, 
effect. It's all the species. The Sea of Cortez and the Upper Gulf is the mother of, of all species in the, uh, of the Gulf of Mexico. It's where they breathe. It's where everything, everything goes on. That's why we have that reserve up there. Now, Sunshine is correct in stating that all gillnets are not the same. The gillnets used to catch shrimp are made of a much smaller gauge monofilament material, and the openings in the net are quite small. Gillnets with larger openings, like those used to catch the endangered tatuaba fish, for example, are probably more likely to entangle and kill the vaquita. But the fact remains that there are numerous documented cases of vaquitas becoming entangled and dying in the gillnets used to catch shrimp. There is another parallel here with the condor. Numerous hunters have told me that they buy the highest quality ammunition, and that even though their ammo still has a lead core, that lead doesn't fragment upon impact. While it may be true that some lead-based bullets fragment to a lesser extent, fragmentation still occurs, and can still have a damaging effect on wildlife. So none of this should be too surprising. The folks who have a financial stake in maintaining the status quo are the ones who will continue to deny the science and claim that there's no reason for them to change. But here's where it gets a bit surprising. The massive disagreement that occurs among conservation groups about what the best approach is towards solving these problems. This is another area where we see lots of similarities between the condor and the vaquita. For the condor, there are two main approaches that have been put forth for addressing the lead ammunition issue. In California, legislation was passed that bans the use of lead-based ammunition for hunting. Initially, this ban was just within the range of the condor, but more recently, a statewide ban was passed by the California legislature, which will be fully implemented by 2019. In Arizona, a voluntary outreach-based approach was implemented, in which hunters who received a tag to harvest an animal within the condor's range were given a coupon for a free box of non-lead ammunition to use on their hunt. This was strictly voluntary, but the effort was backed up by a large outreach campaign run by the Arizona Fish and Game Department with the goal of educating hunters about this important issue. This is an interesting situation because it presents the opportunity to assess and compare these two different approaches towards solving the same problem. Unfortunately, neither effort has been able to significantly reduce lead poisoning mortalities of California condors. In California, a study was released comparing blood lead levels of condors pre- and post-ban on the use of lead-based ammo, and that study found no significant difference in the level or rate of lead poisoning post-ban. This likely stems from the difficulty associated with enforcing such a ban. With lead-based ammunition still readily available and very few game wardens checking up on the type of ammo being used, enforcement is a huge hurdle for this issue. In Arizona, there is good data showing that 80-90% to of hunters are participating in the voluntary non-lead program, a really impressive statistic. But unfortunately, the condor's range has expanded beyond the area where this program operates. It's also speculated that a very high rate of participation or compliance is necessary to reduce condor mortality. This is because condors feed in social groups, so a single contaminated carcass holds the potential to poison a large percentage of the population. Now here's where it gets weird. Despite the fact that there is not solid evidence showing that either of these approaches is more or less effective than the other, everyone seems to have an opinion about which approach will work best. Here's Adam Keats from the Center for Biological Diversity, one of the strongest groups advocating for a lead ammunition ban. 
the thinking person's sports, uh, you know, hunting society of wherever, of Idaho, doesn't own Congress. Uh, who owns Congress is the NRA. And the only thing stopping, the only thing that's going to stop a ban from happening is going to be Congress. So that's all that matters in the hunting community if you're talking about nationwide uh, education outreach efforts. Changing hunters one hunter at a time, uh, phew, I, we don't have that kind of time. That's 50 years to get the NRA to change its mind. And that's, the, that's, that's a ground-up grassroots effort, and that's, that's not going to happen. There's going to be top-down, and then it's going to be the bottoms, and going to realize, okay, let's live with it. We're, we, we're, we're going to stuck with this. Let's make this, let's make this work. Right. So I don't think it's top-down. I mean, yeah, I think it's top-down. It's going to be a nationwide law. I mean, that's the, it has to be. It, ha, like, it, it had to be with gas. No one proposed voluntary usage of unleaded gas as a mechanism of eliminating lead from, from the environment being caused by the burning of lead gas. Right. A, Nobody proposed that. It, it's not different at all. Like, how is it? It's, 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 it's the exact same situation. It turns out that disagreements like this about how to best approach a tricky conservation issue are not new. In fact, the story of the California condor presents one of the most dramatic cases of a disagreement over the best way to approach an endangered species crisis. This is one of the most bizarre stories from the conservation world, and it often goes untold because of the bad light that it casts on many well-known individuals and conservation groups. In 1981, when condor researchers discovered that only 21 condors remained in the wild, an effort to trap the remaining birds and launch a captive breeding program was proposed. Lloyd Kiff, who was the director of the California Condor Recovery Team in the 1980s and early 90s, explains. There was tremendous opposition from the Sierra Club, uh, from Friends of the Earth, and um, some splinter groups, and, and the people that generally show up to hearings like that to to be heard, whether they're reasonable or not. The people, um, one of the, the catchphrases of the opponents of hands-on management was, quote, let them die with dignity. And I always pointed out that this is a cop-out because these, this bird is on its knees because of human impacts. So they, um, these are people who just have that philosophy. And they, uh, the first argument in back in the 50s, the argument was, well, you can't trap these birds. They're too wary, too wily. And then the argument was, well, if you trap them, it'll traumatize them, and they won't do well. They'll die out of the shock. And then it was said, well, you can keep them in captivity, but you can't, as had been done a lot, of course, but you can't get them to breed. And this was total, totally fallacious because Andean condors were bred as early as 1842 in the London Zoo. They'd been bred on every continent by the time we were in, in zoo collections when we were starting to have this argument about the California condor. So we had a good track record with the Indian condor. We knew it was a kind of a shoe-in. Mm -hmm. But uh, that was the one thing we were all sure about, that we could breed them. But then it was argued, well, you can breed them, but you'll just have feathered pigs, and you know, as one group called them. Um, and you know, when you release them, they'll just be totally dependent on people. They'll just be domesticated. But uh, you know, that's not the case. And we didn't think that would be the case. But uh, there was a lot of unease about bringing them all in, of course. And that didn't happen really till the, till the, the last half of the 80s. Yeah. Um, Renowned environmentalist John Brower, then the leader of the Sierra Club, was one of the most outspoken opponents of captive breeding for California condors and coined the phrase, death with dignity, which Lloyd mentioned. 
In retrospect, this seems like a ridiculous stance to take. We now know that condors are actually not that difficult to breed in a captive setting, and without this captive breeding effort and the effort to capture the last wild birds, the species would almost certainly be extinct. So what would John Brower say now that the effort has seen success and condors are flying free throughout their old range and beyond? We'll never know, but this chapter in the history of American conservation is one that groups like the Sierra Club and Audubon do not like to talk about. Of course, the vaquita is going through its extinction crisis right at this moment. It was just announced a few months back that an attempt will take place to capture vaquita and place them into a temporary sanctuary. We have reached a point in the conservation effort for this species that without a captive breeding effort, the vaquita will almost certainly be extinct within the next year or two. The experts studying this species have recognized this reality and have been working with the Mexican government as well as NGOs here in the U.S. to implement a plan for capturing the vaquita. This is scheduled to occur in mid-October of this year. Although I doubt that this capture effort for the vaquita will become nearly as controversial as that of the condor in the 1980s, a number of conservation groups have already spoken out against the effort. And the vaquita biologists behind this capture effort are being extremely cautious as well. Listen to how Dr. Francis Gulland reacts when Eyes on Conservation producer Sean Bogle uses the term captive breeding during an interview. The idea of capturing vaquita for a potential captive breeding program. But stop. Okay. So no one said captive breeding. There's a. Okay. This seems a very jump from um, people who hear about the effort to okay. temporary house to captive breeding. That's okay. a number of okay. steps down the line. The first step is to catch animals and just place them in a sanctuary where they're protected from gillnet bycatch. And ideally, protect them for a couple of years and release them again. So if they're in captivity for a long time in a sanctuary, then they would breed. But the aim right now is not captive breeding. The aim is temporary protection from gillnets. Dr. Gullen's very careful approach and her desire to not use the term captive breeding indicates how tense this situation is. The world of marine mammal conservation is split at the current moment over the issue of holding marine mammals in captivity, with some individuals and groups maintaining that there are valid conservation-based reasons for holding marine mammals in a captive setting, while others don't think that it is appropriate under any circumstances. The vaquita issue is a very difficult issue for these groups who have built their reputations on opposing the captivity of marine mammals. Although quite a few groups oppose this capture attempt for the vaquita, they are not being very vocal about this opposition. And I actually think this is a good thing. Disagreement within the conservation community could definitely be detrimental to the overall effort to save this species, and it seems like these groups are well aware of this. The organization that really seems to be struggling with this messaging right now is the Sea Shepherd Conservation Society. Sea Shepherd has invested a lot of time and money into the effort to save the vaquita, and they have been promoting their involvement in this effort and using it to raise funding. But this is an organization that is opposed not just to the captivity of marine mammals, but also to the harvesting of any and all seafood, period. In recent months, the role of Sea Shepherd in vaquita conservation efforts has become quite controversial, independent of their stance on vaquita captures. For the past two years, Sea Shepherd has been assisting the Mexican Navy with enforcement of the current ban on the use of gillnets within the range of the vaquita. 
realistically, they are playing a small role in this enforcement effort. They've had two ships in the upper Gulf for most of this time, while the Mexican Navy has dozens of boats. But Sea Shepherd is an easy target for the local fishermen of this region. I would argue that this anger that has arisen within the fishing communities towards Sea Shepherd stems from the organization's stance on fishing. The fishermen of San Felipe and the rest of the Upper Gulf aren't stupid. It isn't lost on them that the organization patrolling their historic fishing waters is opposed to the harvesting of any and all seafood. So is Sea Shepherd doing more harm than good? This is certainly not for me to say, but there's another parallel with the condor here. One of the groups that has been most active in advocating for a ban on the use of lead-based ammo for hunting in California is the Humane Society. Once again, here's a group that is opposed to all sport hunting, trying to convince hunters that they should use non-lead ammunition. Can you blame the hunters for suspecting that there's an ulterior motive here? Just like hunters suspect that any effort to get them to use a different type of ammunition is really a veiled attempt to end all hunting, many of the fishermen of the upper gulf see efforts to get them to switch to a different type of fishing practice as a thinly veiled attempt to end all fishing. And the involvement of groups like the Humane Society and Sea Shepherd Conservation Society perpetuates these beliefs. These groups need to recognize that their stances on issues like hunting and fishing are influencing these conservation issues in a negative way. So the comparison of hunting to fishing is an easy one to make. Both are common practices for harvesting animals for human consumption. There is a very significant difference, however, that needs to be mentioned. While hunters are certainly set in their ways, they don't have nearly as much on the line, so to speak, as the fishermen of the upper gulf. Hunting, at least in the U.S., is a recreational activity. Although many hunters rely on the food that they harvest to help feed their families, it's generally not their primary source of income. For the fishermen of the Upper Gulf, this is their livelihood. Without fishing, they don't eat. For this reason, we have and will continue to see a lot of passion from the fishermen of this region of Mexico on this topic. Here's Sunshine Rodriguez, again, the president of the Fishing Federation that represents a majority of the fishermen in San Felipe, Mexico. There were people in the government uh, uh, that just wanted to, and environmentalists as well, they just wanted wanted to ban fishing from the upper Gulf. They didn't care. Uh, Sirba didn't care what was going to go on and how these people were going to feed their families. And those were their words, actually. uh, one time in Mexico City, uh, I straightly out asked them if they knew how much it was going to affect the communities and communities that lived, you know, 100% off, off of the fishing. And one of those persons turned around and, and just straight out asked, told me, you know, that's the, that's the price to pay for killing La Vaquita. So will the Vaquita survive its extinction crisis as did the condor? One final similarity that we can point to between the condor and the vaquita is found in the attitudes that experts have regarding this question. Lloyd Kiff explains the mindset of the condor biologists involved in the controversial attempts to capture the last animals from the wild. It's probably Valentine's Day 1985 that Noel Snyder and uh, Mike Wallace put together a document that a bunch of us signed saying, okay, it's now or never. We got to do it. We got to pull the plug. And about as I recall, about 20 biologists uh, who had been associated with the Condor program in one way or another, including uh, many members of the recovery team, uh, signed this document. And it was uh, just a kind of an open letter to the director of the Fish and Wildlife Service saying, bring them all in. 
at the time, it was very traumatic. Um, there was so much public outcry. Uh, there was so much caution on our part. Uh, but we had to go through with it. We, we believed in this, but, you know, like, wow, what if things go wrong? Where are we? And so um, that's why I'm emotional about it. We got through it. And here's Dr. Frances Gulland explaining her mindset and those of her colleagues regarding the current situation faced by the vaquita. I think you'll always have to have hope. I mean, otherwise you wouldn't get out of bed in the morning and, and do the work that we do. So I, I think everyone working in conservation um, always has hope, and, and you have to have hope to, to keep going. Um, but often times are hard and often... Uh, projects don't work um, and often some of the challenges are, are still there every day but uh, I think if we didn't get up and have hope we wouldn't keep fighting the, the good fight as we say. In my mind the situation faced by the condor provides hope for the vaquita because it reminds us that there is another species that went through an equally dramatic conservation crisis and managed to survive. We humans really do have the ability to make a difference for wildlife. If you want to learn more about either California condor conservation or vaquita conservation, I suggest that you head on over to the show notes page for this episode, where we'll have links to additional resources, including links to watch both our condor documentary, Scavenger Hunt, and our new vaquita documentary, Souls of the Vermilion Sea. Those show notes can be found at wildlensinc.org slash EOC123. If you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, you can subscribe to the show via iTunes or the podcatcher of your choice. If you want to help new people discover the show, you can leave us an honest rating and review on iTunes. Just search for Eyes on Conservation in the iTunes store or follow the link on the show notes page. The Eyes on Conservation podcast is a production of Wild Lens. Today's episode was produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky. Our theme music is by The Humidors. The Humidors.